and during the week, there were a few things that happened that um, you hope don't. Some kids brought some contraband items that were specifically you know, on the do not bring to camp list, and we had to deal with it. And the entire first day we were there, everyone was just miserable because they were trying to keep this item hidden. They were passing it around. They didn't want anyone to know. And then everyone was upset at who was going to be the snitch and who was going to tell. And there was just so much turmoil amongst the students. And it was evident. They were just like, like you felt for them because we knew what was going on. We were just trying to get to the bottom of it. And then finally we confronted them. And they apologized. And as leaders, we talked about, okay, what is our discipline going to be for this? And we just kind of came to the realization, you know what? Like, they've had discipline enough. They've, they've had a rough day. All of the disagreements and the fighting and just the, the weight of guilt on them all day. And they seemed repent, repentant. And so we're like, we'll let that serve as their discipline. That should teach them their lesson. The next day, unfortunately... More contraband items began floating around, and we started to recognize that this discipline had not drawn them towards obedience in the way that we had hoped. And so several of the students did not get to enjoy the pleasure of whitewater rafting because of their sin. However, this discipline did seem to click with them, and the rest of the week, they were more of a joy to be around. And I thought, what a perfect example as we are going to look at the Lord's discipline in our lives and the different shapes that that takes. Um, so as we pick up in Genesis, we are in chapter 29. Uh, let me kind of recap what's been going on in the chapters leading up to this since it's been a while. Um, if you remember, we have Jacob. He is the younger of the twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. And it came time for Isaac to give his blessing. And he was going to give his blessing to Esau. The older son, the firstborn, the one that he favored, the one that he loved. But Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother, instructed Jacob to disguise himself as Esau and go deceive his father to get this blessing. Now Isaac, he was old, his eyes were dim, he didn't have all of his senses fully there, and he fell for this deception and blessed Jacob instead of Esau. Esau, when he found out, was furious and threatened to kill Jacob. So Rebekah devised a plan to get Jacob out of harm's way to send him to her brother's house. Her brother Laban lived in Padanaram, and they sent him there with the idea that he would go there to find a wife. Because both Jacob and Esau are 40 years old, Esau has a couple of wives that are from the Canaanites, and they were a pain, and they brought bitterness into the household. So they sent Jacob away to find a good wife from the household of Laban. And so here's Jacob on his way, having just worked out this devious plan, this incredible sin to deceive his father and to steal the blessing from his brother. And God really gets him. He shows him by showing up and blessing him and promising to give him offspring like the dust of the earth and promising him land, that the land of the Canaanites would be his someday and that his family would be a blessing to all other families on the earth and that God promised to be with him. This is God's response to Jacob's sin is, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you multiply, I'm going to give you all this land, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to be your God and I promise that I'll bring you back to this land. And Jacob says, alright, when you bring me back to this land, then you will be my God. But until then, I've got this. 
And so Jacob is on his way. This is where we pick up the story. Jacob is on his way to find Laban and hopefully to find a wife or two. So we'll start reading in chapter 29, verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where did you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As I read this, the thing that strikes me, first of all, is kind of humorous, but he kisses Rachel and then she runs and tells her father. It seems very junior high-ish almost, but there's something very culturally appropriate happening in the circumstance. Um, one thing you'll notice as we read through this passage is that God's name isn't mentioned at all. This is Jacob's mindset. God, you bring me back to the land, then you'll be my God. But right now, there's nothing going on in the relationship between God and Jacob. Jacob is flying solo. It doesn't mean that God's not involved, though. Even when we try to fly solo, we try to do things on our own, God is still there and God is still involved. So a little bit of historical context, what's happening here, what traditions are going on that make the situation play out the way that it does. Uh, First of all, the well, wells would have had large stones over them for several reasons. First of all, it's to protect the water from contamination, from bugs or any sort of disease, or from animals falling into them. So the stone was for protection, but it was also um, to protect people from stealing the water. So in this area, it's really dry, and so several flocks of sheep would share one well, and there would be some sort of an agreement between all of the owners as to how much water, when they would gather, and a way that they would make sure that no one was taking more water than anyone else is they would all come together at one time and water their sheep. So this is what's happening when all these flocks are coming together, and Jacob says, well, why don't you water the flocks and go now? They say, it's not time. We have to wait for all the flocks to get here because that's the agreement. So that is, that's what's happening with this well as they come. Um, so the herds are gathering together, and once they all come together, the stone was large, so it would allegedly take several men to remove the stone so no one person could go and steal the water. It was also fairly uncommon in this day for a woman to be a shepherdess. It was typically a job for the guys. Um, 
but it's not something completely unheard of. It would most often be the case when there were no sons to care for the sheep in the family, but we do find out later that Laban does have some sons. Um, it was also common for a woman to be a shepherdess as this was an opportunity for her to find a husband being out amongst the men. So similar um, when, if you remember back a few chapters in chapter I think it was 25, Abraham sends his servant to go find a wife for Isaac. And they meet at the well. The water was a gathering place, a communal place for people to come together. So there is Jacob. He happens to find a well. Jacob has incredible luck, or I'll say luck, that as he goes, he happens to find a well in the middle of the field, the deserts, and it just so happens that it is the well where the shepherds from Haran, where his uncle Laban lives, are shepherding. They just so happen to know him, and in fact, it so happens to be the well where his cousin, Rachel, is bringing the sheep, and he happens to arrive there at the time when she is also arriving. He goes looking for a wife, and all of these things just fall together beautifully. But yet, Jacob doesn't acknowledge anywhere that this is God. Instead, against the advice of all these shepherds, he takes things into his own hand and removes the stone on his own, a sign of brute strength, his ability to remove the stone, which is mentioned to be very large. And he waters Rachel's flocks. Very much what he learned from his mother. His mother caught the eye of Abraham's servants when she watered his camels. Now here, a generation later, Jacob is watering Rachel's flock. A sign of his servanthood and his desire to get to know them more. Only after he waters them and kisses her does he reveal who he is. You have to imagine Rachel wondering, who is this guy, this stranger I've never seen before, and what is he doing? This is strange, but if I don't have to water the flocks, I'm okay with it. The reason he kisses her, it would have been a kiss on the cheek, this is a greeting, especially amongst relatives and kin in the East. And so the kiss was not a romantic kiss. It was a kiss of greeting. Um, just this isn't like one of those examples that we follow in Scripture, especially talking about you single guys out here. Like, don't think this will work out well for you if you just go find a woman and kiss her. Um, I don't advise it. So Jacob reveals who he is. Um, and so Rachel returns to tell Jacob. Let's continue reading then in verse 13, as Rachel returns to tell her father Laban. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So Jacob, the refugee, the one running for his life with nothing to his name, hits a patch of really good luck and happens to run into his relatives. And he finds a place to stay with Laban. All of this luck that it seemed like Jacob is having, we know it's God's provision. Even though God's name is not mentioned anywhere, God is there directing his steps exactly where he should go. But Jacob doesn't recognize it at all. 
In fact, if you look back at the story when the servant goes and has this incredible luck of having to go to the well and find Rebecca, the one that he had been looking for, that is the servant-hearted one that's going to water his flocks, 15 times the name of the Lord is mentioned in that entire account. The servant is very much aware that the Lord needs to be with him, that the angel of the Lord needs to go before him, that the angel needs to direct his steps. And after he finds Rebecca, he says, surely the Lord has, has been with me and has guided my steps. Fifteen times he recognizes the Lord's role in this. Jacob misses it. He doesn't see God's blessing. He doesn't see God's provision. And sometimes we're like Jacob. It's really easy to think that our good fortune or our good luck or uh, whatever good we encounter in life is either the result of our hard work um, or just circumstance, and we fail to miss God's hand working in our lives. James 1.17 says that every gift, every good gift, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good thing that we receive comes from God. And we need to be quick to recognize that, unlike Jacob. Here God is coming to Jacob and saying, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you a multitude of descendants, and by the way, here's the woman. I will take you five, six, seven hundred miles away from your home to the exact well, the exact time that she is coming. And Jacob's like, I got this. He does not see God's blessing. This is a chance of God drawing him, trying to let him recognize the role that God is playing in his life and to worship God like the servant of Abraham did. But Jacob doesn't. He just passes it off as good luck. This is the fortune that he's having and doesn't mention God's name at all. And so it would seem that Jacob has deceived his father, stolen the blessing of his brother, and up to this point, there aren't any consequences. He had to leave his family, yes, for his own protection, but even in leaving, as soon as he leaves, he encounters God and is blessed by God, and he finds a woman to marry, like that. So even in the midst of the consequence of leaving his family, he finds everything that he could want, everything that he's looking for. And sometimes when we sin, we can be lulled into thinking that we're getting away with it because nothing bad is happening right away. And so we continue in our sin or our arrogance or our pride because there's no seeming consequence. Um, We can really be fooled into thinking that we get away with it. We think that no one knows about what's happening, and they might not, Or maybe we think that we've gotten away from the discipline of our parents or the law or God. As if God, the God who is omnipresent, omniscient, he is everywhere and knows everything. He knows. He knows the sin that you think you've gotten away with. If you haven't been disciplined yet, it is by his grace. And so we're going to talk about a little bit the discipline of the Lord. And we see more of this as Jacob begins to interact with Laban. And we see some of Jacob's plans, his tricks, his patterns coming back to bite him. So let's continue um, 
reading in verse 15. And as we read, we're talking about Laban now. If you notice the way that Laban is addressed or the way that he's talked about, back in verse 10, Laban's name is mentioned three times. Each time it is Laban, his mother's brother. His mother, Rebecca, the one that came up with the original scheme, she's the original schemer. This is her brother. The apples do not fall far from the tree. They are very much alike, and the author is trying to draw our eyes to that attention that, watch out, this is Laban, this is Rebecca's brother. And we know Rebecca and her plots and her schemes and her deceitfulness. Watch out for Laban. So verse 15, let's continue reading. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. One of the great romantic lines in the Bible. So a few observations. Jacob says that he's, going, he's willing to serve seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage, and Laban agrees. It was customary in this time to pay something to the family when you would marry one of the daughters. Um, but Jacob is a fugitive. He has nothing to his name, so he has nothing that he can go and say, I will give you, you know, 50 goats, or I will give you 30 shekels of silver for your daughter's hand in marriage. All he has are his two hands. And so the only thing he has to negotiate with is work. Uh, a typical bride price in that day would have been 30 to 40 shekels, which is about three to four years' wages. So if you're, you know, making... 40000 a year or something like that, that's like hundred and twenty dollars to $160,000. You have to be really serious about wanting to marry somebody to pay that. And typically what would happen is the family would pay the price and then the family that received that would kind of use that to pay for a bride for their sons. So it kind of would get passed around. Jacob is willing to work for six years, which means he's willing to give six years worth of wages he is overpaying for Rachel. Which shows us probably two things happening. One, he has no negotiation chips. He has nothing that he can negotiate with. Laban's like, you've got nothing. And so this arrangement is made, but also it shows the value that Jacob placed on Rachel. Uh, typically, the bride price would be higher for those women that were viewed as more desirable. And so Jacob pays almost double of what would be the typical bride price for Rachel by the work of his hands. So in verse 21, we pick up the story seven years later. Jacob has worked these seven years that seemed to him but a few days, and now he is ready to receive Rachel. In verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah 
and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. The deceiver has been deceived. Jacob has gotten a taste of his own medicine now. So let's talk a little bit about the historical context because this is a very odd thing that would not happen today. Um, First of all, at a wedding, there would, like today, be a large feast, a large celebration where families would come together. And um, during this, there would be a parade. The entire time, though, the bride would be completely veiled. So Jacob would not be able to see her. There would also be plenty of wine abounding for anyone who would like to partake. So it's understandable a little bit more than Jacob just not recognizing who it is, that it is dark, his vision is impaired, he can't see, and there's the good possibility that he might be slightly inebriated. But in the morning when he wakes up in the light of day, there's no question what's happened. But at this point, it is too late. There's no annulment. There's no going back. He is married to Leah. Now, the, re- the reason that Laban gives is that it was common to marry off the older daughter. The reason they would do this is to prevent there from being you know, daughters that would never get married and would eventually just become burdens on their family as they were old spinsters. Um, and so Laban has this fear that Leah might not get married. And rather than him receiving an exorbitant amount of money for someone to marry her, he's now going to have to put all of his resources into providing for her for the rest of her life. And so this is an extreme benefit to Laban to marry off Leah. Plus, he's very quick to say, you can marry Rachel as well for another seven years. He is marrying off both of his daughters in one foul swoop for probably double what the typical bride price was. He is making out like a bandit in this situation. Um... So when it mentions then that Jacob had to complete the week with Leah, this is kind of like our honeymoon. It was, um, it's believed that they would use a week to signify the creation of new life, that they were creating a new life together just as a week of creation was seven days. They would spend seven days together, just the husband and wife, and also the hope that there would be creation of new life uh, through children early on in the marriage. So that's what the custom was. So Jacob spends the week with Leah, then a week la- later marries her sister which I can imagine would create a wonderful home environment. Um, It wouldn't. Um, So the story parallels what happens in chapter 27 with the deception of Isaac. So even though God isn't mentioned, the author is leaving us clues throughout to say, this instance, what's happening here, is directly tied to what happened between Jacob and Isaac two chapters earlier. And actually, Jeff, if I could get the clicker from you. I'll have it back here. 
I'm going to walk through how these two things parallel each other. So in both stories, there is deceit. In verse 35 of chapter 27, when Esau goes to Isaac and says, give me your blessing, and Isaac recognizes what's happened, he says, your brother came deceitfully. Then in verse 25 of chapter 29, after Jacob realizes what's happened, he uses the exact same word. He says, why have you deceived me? The deceiver has become deceived. In both of these stories, there's instances of impaired vision. If it's too small up on the screen, I'll explain what's up there if you're in the back. Um, So in verse 1 of chapter 27, we see Isaac's eyes are dimmed because of his old age. The author very specifically mentions that Jacob goes into Leah in the evening when his vision would not have been able to see as well. It wasn't like they had electricity. He could just turn on the lights to see what was happening. It was dark. And in the morning, in the light of day, when his vision is back to normal, he sees and recognizes what's happened. There's also, and this is probably one of the strongest ones, there's a sibling substitute happening. But it's flipped. With Isaac, the younger replaces the older. The older gets replaced and the younger takes the place. Here, it's the younger that gets thrown off to the side and the older one is put in their place. The tables have turned and now the older children are getting what they want instead of the younger children. So in Genesis 29, the younger is replaced by the older. There's also a tie-in with brotherly deception. So Jacob deceives his brother. The Hebrew word for brother is what Isaac says, your brother has come and has stolen your blessing. In chapter 29, in the English, we translate it a little bit differently. The word kinsman is the exact same word in Hebrew for brother. Um, But because we know that Laban is not physically his brother, we we translate it differently as kinsman. So twice, Laban is referred to as his kinsman, or in Hebrew, the exact same thing, his brother. Jacob has been deceived by his brother. And finally, almost the exact same wording is used in Genesis 27 when Rebekah tells Jacob, you need to flee because your brother is trying to kill you because of what you did to him. Jacob's first words to Laban, what have you done to me? These two are intricately tied together and the author is connecting these two stories to show his divine hand, God's divine hand, in disciplining the deceiver. We talked a few weeks ago when we were talking about the deception of Isaac about Jacob's faith and how he can trust God as long as Jacob has the ability to figure things out on his own. He is, has that type of personality where he needs to have a plan. He wants to get everything worked out. And so his attitude, which has continued into this passage of him figuring things out, working his way until he can get his wealth, amass his wealth back, find things, earn his way to marry the woman that he wants, all without the hand of God is coming back to get him. And now for the rest of his life, imagine this. He's living with Leah every day the rest of his life 
and the difficulty that ensues, the sibling rivalry that he has to deal with with his two wives, is a constant reminder of the pain that happens when you deceive others. God places an intentional reminder in his life of the outcome of deception. And while God's name isn't mentioned here, very quickly in the next story about Jacob, Jacob is ready to recognize the hand that God has to play. Um, The next story is um, when Rachel and Leah begin having children, they're competitive, and to see who can have the more children, and Leah begins having children, and Rachel can't get pregnant. And so Rachel goes to Jacob and says, basically tells him, give me a child or else I'll die. And Jacob's response is, am I God that I can open the womb? It clicks with Jacob. He gets it. God is the one that is in control. Rachel doesn't get it yet. She still tries to manipulate and to get her way. But Jacob, after getting a taste of his own medicine, sees it. So I want to talk a little bit about the discipline of the Lord in our lives as believers, because this can be a little bit of a touchy subject, especially if we grew up in a household where discipline was erratic or angry or done out of contempt. And we can kind of project those ideas of discipline onto God. So I want to talk about how does God discipline and how do we understand his discipline and how do we respond to his discipline. The first thing we see out of Hebrews is that God does discipline. Um, It's not a God that is a God of love and never does anything that isn't painful to us and just makes life so peaceful and wonderful because we're the best. That's not God. It says in Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. His discipline is done out of love. It is not the Lord disciplines the one whom he is angry at. The Lord disciplines the one that he loves. And very often he uses natural circumstances as discipline. He doesn't you know, come down from heaven and bring the holy rod of correction and spank us or put us in a you know, holy time out. He will use things around us or people around us even to discipline us And the goal of discipline, we think of punishment, and if I want to divide between the words punishment and discipline, punishment is causing, uh, this is really rough, but I'll say causing pain on somebody because of the wrong that they did. And, And the word discipline always has in mind the end goal of bringing to obedience. So it is not that God is angry at us because we did wrong and wants to give us what we deserve. It is that God loves us so much that he doesn't want us to continue doing wrong and he wants to direct us by any means possible back into obedience because he knows that's what's best for us. But sometimes we might be like Jacob and we might view natural circumstances or things around us just as happenstance. We don't recognize when God is disciplining us. The author in this chapter is very intentional to tie everything back to that story through linking it. And there's all these ties, the younger for the older, the words that are used, the deception, the brother, to show Jacob that this is to correct him, to bring him back into obedience, to see the error of his ways. 
So how do we discern God's discipline? How do we know when he is disciplining us? So a couple initial caveats to this discussion. First thing, everything that bad that happens isn't God's discipline. Sometimes the temptation can be like, oh no, I got a flat tire. God must be disciplining me for like not having quiet time this morning. Or there's some spiritual connection here to everything bad that happens. That's not the case. Sometimes when things go wrong, it doesn't mean that God's angry or punishing you. Sometimes it's just other people's sin. We live in a fallen world. And there's brokenness all around us. On the other hand, when good things happen to us, it doesn't mean that there's not sin in our life. And this is what we saw in Jacob. He gets blessed. He receives all these incredible blessings and has this good fortune to find the woman that he wants to marry. But yet there's still sin in his heart that he has not dealt with with God. We can also fall into the assumption that God never disciplines us. And so when things go wrong, we just assume, oh, that's just happenstance, or that's someone else's fault. Nothing is ever our fault. God would never correct us because we're just the perfect children of God. It's not the case. So the nature of God's discipline, first of all, God's discipline is always loving. Every single time. His desire is to bring us into obedience, into a closer relationship with Him, to cut off the sin in our lives so there's nothing separating us from Him. It is not contemptuous. It is not out of anger. God's not like earthly fathers who at times discipline out of anger or frustration. God is not up in heaven saying, I can't believe they did that again. I'm really going to show them this time. I'm going to get them back for what they did. I can't believe them. They're just the worst. No, he lovingly steers us back towards him. His heart in heaven is saying, I desire to be close to them, and I want them to see the error of their ways and to come close to me. There's also a myriad of reasons that things happen. Think of a 45-year-old woman who is diagnosed with terminal cancer. Based on that alone, we cannot say that's God's punishment or that's God's discipline on her. God could be using that, yes, to draw her back into obedience. He could be using it because at her funeral, several of her relatives are going to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Or maybe it's going to be used in the life of her 20-year-old son who's gone astray to recognize that he needs to get back in line with God. Or maybe he is pulling her home to be in heaven so that she doesn't have to walk through life of seeing her daughter turn away from the Lord and live a rebellious life. We have such small minds that we can't even begin to comprehend the number of reasons of why things happen. And because of that, it is very dangerous to assume based on circumstance alone that God is disciplining us. And in fact, if we sit there and we ask the question, like, have, have you guys ever asked, like, is this discipline? Is God disciplining me in this? Okay, just me. Yes, okay, one other. Um, it's the question that we're really trying to get to is, is there sin in my life? That's what we really want to know. We're not like, oh, is God disciplining me? Do I need to do a better job hiding next time? No, we, the genuine answer we want to know is, am I sinning? And so because there's so many ways that God uses circumstances in our lives to disciple us, to draw us closer to him, to minister to other people around us, and not, and not everything's about you. God could be using something in your life to grow somebody else that's close by you. 
And so when we, when we really want to know, am I walking in sin? We don't want to look at circumstances to answer that question. We don't want to look at our circumstances and ask, is God disciplining me in this? What we want to do is we want to go to Scripture. We want to go to Scripture and say, is there sin in my life somewhere that God might be trying to draw out? If we simply say, every time something bad happens and God's disciplining me, what we really believe in is karma. If I do bad, then bad things happen to me. And if I do good, then good things happen to me. That is completely counter to the gospel. It's completely counter to everything that God teaches in Scripture. In fact, in the Old Testament, it says that the rain falls on the wicked and the righteous alike. And so just because there's good happening in your life doesn't mean there's not sin that God wants you to deal with. John Piper gives an example of one day he was having a disagreement with his wife, and he got very harsh with her, and then he knew that he had to go take the trash out because it was trash day. And so he begins to haul the trash out. And as he's pulling the trash out to the road, the sun is gleaming and the birds are chirping. And he recognizes that it's the kiss of God, as he describes it. That even though the grossness of his own sin that caused him to lash out of anger, God is still loving him. And he's like, I broke down in the driveway and just cried because I knew that God still loved me. And God used his love to discipline me, to bring me into obedience so that I would repent. So if we believe that, God, that bad things are always God's discipline for us doing bad things, and God's blessing is always God's blessing on us for doing good things, then really we're believing in karma and not worshiping God. So we must discern our sin by reading scripture. Yes, there might be times where our circumstances lead us to believe And God might be using it to be like, hey, I think there's sin in your life that you need to get correct. And he brings a discipline or a harsh circumstance. And so the way we should evaluate that is first by praying and asking God to reveal if there's any sin. Rather than sitting there and trying to figure it out on our own, which I've done this before, like, oh, something bad is happening. What is it that I could have done wrong? And I just sit there and try to figure it out in my head. Rather than asking God, what are you doing in this? take it to prayer. Ask God to reveal sin in your life. If God wants you to correct from sin, he will show it to you. He's not a cruel God that would say, I want you to fix the sin in your life, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. So figure it out and then get it together. That's not God. He wants us to know our sin, to correct our sin, to bring us into obedience. So we pray and we ask God, we read scripture. Asking God, and if there's any sin in our hearts, anything, any wicked thought that is not of Him. We go to Scripture because this is how we know, this is what God uses to convict of sin. So pray, read Scripture, and finally seek godly counsel. Yes, there are times where we might be blind to our own sin, blind to our pride, our selfishness, our arrogance. If there's godly people around you, they will point it out to you if you ask. So find godly counsel and ask them, is there a sin in your life that you were blind to? And when they tell you what that sin is, receive it with humility. Because the temptation is always to be like, you don't know what you're talking about, you don't know me. And to walk away in pride when they tell you that you struggle with pride. So if you feel like you might be in Jacob's shoes receiving the discipline of the Lord, I encourage you to pray and ask God to read scripture, examine your life, and to seek godly counsel. And when there is sin, to repent.
The call is not just to find sin so that we know it's there and let it fester. Cut it out. Remove it. Turn away from your sin and turn towards God. We get a great picture of this in the life of Jacob. As early on in his life, he tries to run things his own way, to get his own way through lying, deception, manipulation, through working really hard and figuring things out. And eventually he realizes God's the one in control. God's the one that's going to provide the blessings for me that he's promised, and I don't have to get them in my own strength. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be a few times where he relapses into his old patterns and ways of thinking. But each time, the call is to repent, to turn back to God. And so that's what I want to do today. today. Um, As I've been preaching, there might be something that has come to your mind a sin or a circumstance, a harsh attitude that you may have had, or a prideful thought or a prideful heart in circumstances, or impatience, a lack of understanding, anger, bitterness. The call is to repent, to turn. And so as Sam comes and leads us in this last song, um, I'm just going to have him sing and let us take a time of prayer individually and then um, just kind of spend some time meditating. And at the end of the song, I will come up and lead us um, in a prayer of confession together um, as a body.